Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-round wine communication. Tickets are on sale now, so for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. Hello, everybody. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. In this episode, we welcome Steph de Boudin, an absolute powerhouse in Australasian wine marketing. With a wine career spanning over 20 years, Steph has been the Australia-New Zealand Manager for Wine Intelligence and Decanter, Judge of the Wine Communicators of the Year Award for five years running, and Chair of Wine Victoria. Today, Steph shares her extensive knowledge on the state of Australian wine, while we dive into my favorite topic, the future of wine marketing. Let's get into it. All right, Steph, welcome. Thank you so much um, for jumping on. I know it's been one hell of a week for you there in Oz, but I'm glad to have you here today. Thanks, Polly. Good to be here. So you and I spent a couple weeks ago, I guess it was a couple weeks at this point, um, we were at the Wine Impact Industry, Wine Industry Impact Conference. I'm always going to get that wrong uh, <laughs> for WISA. And uh, I just, I wanted a chance to catch up with you because not only are you the chair for Wine Victoria, but you have a two decade long illustrious career in wine insights, in analytics, you've worked for wine intelligence and decanter. And I thought it'd be a really nice opportunity to kind of get your feel on what we heard at the conference and what we think is going on in Oz and New Zealand and beyond. Sure. Okay. No, it was great. And it was, it was so good to meet you at the conference. And I think, I think a lot of people felt that it was, um, there was such a good vibe at that conference. And, and I don't mean that, you know, other conferences don't, but I think I, you know, firstly, obviously we haven't had heaps of, you know, sort of large scale events since COVID times. And obviously we here in Victoria had a lot of lockdowns, but, um, so it was great for that, uh, part of things, but I also kind of feel that, there was, I think there was a great lineup of speakers and the content that was being focused on was very sort of innovative, forward focusing in a way. I mean, the, the topic was future, how to future proof your wine business. And um, as Jeremy, the host said at the end, there wasn't once a discussion about wine quality um, because we kind of know how to do that. Um, been doing that for a really long time, but there was a lot on innovations and e-com, and, um, you know, NOLO and a whole heap of other things, which was, which was great. Well, I, I totally agree with you on that. Um, a couple things that stood out to me. One, the Australian audience came prepared to be really engaged, which was just fabulous. Um, and the other thing was that I remember going to conferences years back and trying to talk with people about digital and e-commerce and you know understanding our consumers and, and the things that are so commonplace now. And it was just nothing, you know, like glazed over eyes, staring at me like, no, what are these things <laughs> that you're speaking of? It's all Absolutely. magic. Um, and, and in terms of the content that you saw and very specifically to what's happening in Australia, let's just back up a minute. And because um, not everybody who's listening was at the conference with us. That's what right. were some of the challenges that you have felt, you know, personally in the work that you've done in the region or that came up in the conference uh, that are, you know, that are the biggest challenges Australia is going to have going forward in maybe like the next five years, obviously China being organic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think China's most definitely number one. Um, it's, you know, it's a huge um, deficit, you know, the export market that's just been wiped off there for that uh, channel. And obviously, so, you know, very much looking for, for other markets to, you know, where that wine can go. Um, both obviously export and domestic, but um, I think probably um, what what COVID has done too, and where things 
and I, I totally agree with you about what you were saying before. It was always quite a struggle in terms of getting people on board and in sort of marketing technology innovations, digital technology innovations to use in your business. And that's, I think it's, I think what's happened during COVID is, you know, we still had a lot of wineries here in Australia that didn't have online um, e-commerce stores on their website, plenty that did, but, um, you know, there was still quite a lot that didn't. So, you know, everyone had to quickly upskill in that area. And obviously the direct-to-consumer channel is so profitable, it's a really high margin. So, it has really put attention on really being able to drive that more and what you can do in that space to really, you know, sell, you know, sell more direct to the consumer, whether it be from your cellar door, but mainly from that e-commerce side of things. So I, I have a question about that. I mean, you do a ton of work in strategy building and resource building um, through your business, which is Food and Wine Insights. Uh, I notice that digital is a bit of a mixed bag in the sense that we're told it should be really easy, whack a website up, you do all of these things. But actually the resourcing and then the knowledge resourcing is really difficult. Are you finding that wine brands whom you work with are more, um, they're more interested in bringing digital into the strategy from the very beginning or have we just not reached that point yet? Yeah, I, I think it's a good point. I think it was like just a bit of an add-on before and particularly pre-COVID and we'd look at like, you know, e-commerce wine sales and it was always nearly just trying to get to double digits and it was like, when is that tipping point going to happen? Um, Which will then put a bit more, you know, sort of focus on it. And I think that is really elevated in terms of the priorities within a business that it's, you know, that it's a a core one to focus on. But I think it, you know, it definitely is, you know, massive skill shortages at the moment. So it's really hard to get stuff anyway but then you know a lot of businesses that we're talking about a lot of wineries small ones um you know they might have one person that's doing about three different jobs uh, and trying to cover off a lot of different areas so you know an e-com and digital becomes one of theirs as well as maybe they're the sales manager and and things like that so without doubt it, it definitely takes time to understand what you're doing in the space and particularly if you've got websites that you know a little bit hard. Some websites, uh, platforms are much easier to use than others. Um, I, I sort of have a bit of a bugbear too in the wine industry. I don't know why there's a belief that you have to use a proprietary wine sort of focused system. There is nothing different about a wine club to a loyalty program. So um, <laughs> it's not, you know what I mean? There's no sort of hidden science as to what we're doing compared to other e-commerce in general. So I just think there's so many good applications off the shelf ready to go, like a Shopify or uh, things like that, instead of having to invest in a, a specific wine-focused platform. That might be controversial. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> no, um, no, it, it's funny. I, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, we notice that the biggest problem to that particular uh, adoption is our belief in a traditional wine club model. Like, you know, if you're like, oh, I need to have that wine club that it goes out like six bottles every quarter and I want a choice, we can customize it and all of this. Like that's actually a huge challenge for some of the platforms. But brands, and we see this on Shopify, I I remember that Empathy Wines um, years ago was one of the first ones who rolled it out. Brands that are willing to completely rethink how we sell our subscription models. And like you talk about, you know, our loyalty points and all of that. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, options out there. I I think it goes all the way back to just what we think, how we think wine sells. Mm. Um, Absolutely. I I, I do, I am curious because you've done so much work with data and insights over the years. I mean, that's really your bailiwick. Um, Are you finding that wine brands are not only, you know, buying it, paying for it, because we always know that the data gets bought and it gets put in like a bottom drawer and nobody ever goes back to it. Um, but yes. are, are brands, medium and small brands, actually like looking at the data, asking good questions and, and wanting to apply it? Are you talking about the data on the back of a website or are you talking about general market data? No, I'm about talking consumers? about your General market data. Yeah. So, I mean, the kind of data that, that you have focused on for so long. So whether it's the wine intelligence data or whether it's your own um, qualitative and quantitative data through Food and Wine Insights. I know a lot of times it was only the purview of really big brands that could afford it. 
But are you finding that there's a greater pickup to that with small and medium-sized brands these days? I, I think there's a, there's a um, there's a desire, always a desire for um, uh, uh, you know for small to medium wineries as well to to know what the latest trends are. But it, it is still a little bit cost prohibitive in terms of you know. Um, it is. It still probably does remain the domain of some of the larger and the next rung down sort of wineries in terms of, you know, actually investing in it themselves. But um, but I would say there's actually a tremendous amount of insights out there just in general um, that you can, you know, if you've got a particular area that you want to focus on, say if it was like, you know, no and low alcohol, that category, you know, you can actually, I mean, Google is your friend and, you, I mean, obviously it's, it's different to uh, just, you know, getting a full deck of, of insights. but you can. There's a lot published out on the internet of latest trends of what's going on in that space, and it can certainly insights you're looking for a bit of a bell curve of where things are going because obviously they can't absolutely tell you what to do. But when you when you assess that sort of overall trend of where things are going, that gives you you know a good sort of direction in terms of what uh, what the potential could be. I remember reading an amazing report it was by a research agency over in the US called Canvas Eight. It was about six years ago. Heineken did a study on uh, low, no alcohol. And at the time, all those findings seemed quite like completely revolutionary that people, young consumers would be wanting to drink no alcohol beer. Um, but, you know, they were ahead of the curve. They, this was absolutely, you know, the type of insights that, um, that you know, were spot on about consumer behaviour and wellness and all those sort of changes that are driving the no low. And, you know, and that's why Heineken, you know, so successful bringing out zero alcohol beer. Um, and, but just, you know, and I, I feel like now, wow, I wish I'd started something six years ago when I was, you know, read that first right, report. Right, right. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but it, it, it all seemed quite, you know, shocking at the time to think that consumers were going to be behaving like that. It seemed really different. But now, you know, it's like a tipping point. Um, and it's, you know, it's the fastest growing category at, um, Dan Murphy's our largest liquor store. So, um, yeah, it's 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 really interesting. You can find you can find some you know some okay data that'll give you a bit of a direction heading about where things are going in general about particular topics. We call it secondary data. So there is quite a lot out there. So just kind of keeping your your ear to the ground and knowing where to look on that. Um, I mean, do you have any beyond Google, Google Trends, that sort of thing. Do you have any go-to spaces that maybe anybody who's listening can be like, okay, is it uh, Global Web Index? Is it, you know, Drinks Business uh, specific insights? Yeah, Drinks Business is a really good one and they will keep up some latest insights. Wine Intelligence, they will, and the International Wine and Spirits Record is another one. They'll both, you know, post sort of like teasers that give you a bit of, you know, examples about things. And also Mintel, which is a large global research firm, they often put out quite good uh, reports overall. It mightn't be, they'll be on beverage, it mightn't be specifically for wine, but even just in general kind of macro trends that are going on around the world. Because again, you know, like obviously all those health and wellness trends, that's not just, obviously, it's, it's impacting so much of our life. It's not just wine. Um, but, you know, so you get those macro trends that are impact, that, you know, infiltrate a you know, across all consumers, really, like the good for me, good for you sort of um, trend. It's not a trend, really. It's probably a movement of, um, you know, of, of consumers that are, you know, wanting to make purchases that align with their beliefs. So, you know, the businesses that um, have good sustainability practices, have good social practices, all of that, you know, it's becoming certainly with younger consumers, you know, the um, what they the what they put on that in terms of importance is, is, is larger than older generations. So that, again, gives you insight of what's going on and that generation's going to, you know, um, only become even more important as they get older and then new generations come along as well. Yeah, and I guess that notion also of being willing, a, or being, excuse me, um, willing to hypothesize, to look at, at data and be like, okay, if we've got this coming out of, for instance, fashion and beauty, I find that there's so much interesting research that applies to um, Alk beverages coming out of fashion and beauty or sustainable luxury. Um, I'm quite curious because, of course, your career has spanned, you know, the globe, quite honestly. Uh, and you're situated home now in Oz. Do you find that some markets are simply better adopters? Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why I ask. I always felt like in New Zealand, we were surprisingly early adopters because, you know, we're the back of beyond. 
if we didn't yeah. have the internet <laughs> all those years ago, we weren't going to be able to get shit, right? Yes. Um, so is it the kind of thing that you look at it and you're like, well, actually our, you know, our rural, our farmers in many cases are way better at adopting technology than we might think they are. Any thoughts on that? Any, th- uh, on uh, what, uh, in terms of what Australia is doing that on are just, really adopters? Yeah. It, well, Australia, but also are you like, oh, you know what? The Americans are in fact much slower adopters we've seen than the Australians and the Antipodeans or the UK, you know, they take forever. Any sort of um, mm. generalities and then we can work down from there. Sure. Um, yeah, no, it's definitely an interesting one. And um, I think I think a lot of trends, not everything, but I think a lot of consumer behaviour trends with what, with what's going on with wine do come a lot from, um, I, well, some have come from the US, so obviously canned wines and seltzers. So I lived in New York a long time ago and I knew what a seltzer was, but I thought, and I knew that trend was going on in the US before it came to Australia. Again, probably should have mm. invested in a brand. But, um, but, and I did wonder, I thought, well, what, what, what will Australian wine consumers, well, consumers think? They, they don't know what seltzer is. I mean, seltzer is soda water of what we call it. Um, so it's a word we don't even know. Um, and it's kind of an unusual word. But um, that hasn't really stopped things. But that definitely, that trend definitely came from the States. And I think a lot of, in general, wine consumer behaviour comes from a lot from the UK, like you know, rosé has been very popular here for a long time, and um, but you know that was really driven a lot by by um, the UK coming there first. What I find really interesting is that cask wine is actually doing really well in Europe, and um, so and I'm quite into sort of the innovations um, with formats, with packs, and things like that. And obviously, you know, Australia, um, it's you know, it was our we invented the cask, but it has different perceptions It came here. from Australia, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it'll be really interesting to see what impact they may have here because from a sustainability point of view, you know, cask is, is tremendous on that sort of side of things. But we probably have had a history of putting different quality wines in cask, which that creates a bit of a legacy issue. But, you know, they're – in Europe, they're putting better quality wines in smaller format. It might be like a you know seven fifty mil or a one liter and things like that. So it might change a bit of behaviour here because you know I mean of course you know the wine bottle's great, but fundamentally a wine cask is quite a sustainable packaging. Um, so you know that's very interesting what's going on there. I think um, yeah I think with um, e-commerce sort of side of things, I think we're probably at pace with others at the moment and all, all the sort of, even though we are quite a geographically diverse country, certainly in, you know, being in the cities and things like that, being able to get, you know, had a bit of an explosion of the services we can get, you know, air alcohol delivery in a pretty quick time and things like that. And that's sort of a trend that's going on all around the world. But obviously I live in the Macedon Ranges, only 65 k's out of Melbourne. I mean, forget about getting Uber Eats or <laughs> or any sort of wine delivery in a you know in one of those systems here. So that puts us at a bit of a disadvantage for sure. But um, it, I think it makes you a good planner. <laughs> exactly, or very friendly with my local wine shop, <laughs> or, or you know, 100%. or I, yeah, yeah, I, I do. I mean, she actually lives uh, just across the paddock from me, so that's quite handy. Um. But, um, I actually, yeah. I'm going to jump in. I have a story about that. I had my um, one of my best friends who was my neighbor also happened to own a vineyard. This was in Auckland for years and years. And there were definitely the days that I would go and knock on her door and be like, you want to sell me a case of wine? You want to pass me a case <laughs> of wine across the fence? You're like, come on, I'm out. So um, our <laughs> naughty behaviors, admitting to those. Um, so I, I actually want to talk about some of your work with uh, Wine Communicators of the Year, if we're talking about sort of adoption and e-commerce and, you know, how we've all evolved um, since March yes. 2020. You have yeah. been a judge for years. Yes. Yep. What do you see? What do you see changing? Like if we go back to, I, I think the first year was 2018. Is that correct? That you were a judge yes. for Wine Communicators of the Year? Yeah, um, yeah, it's an interesting one because certainly I think uh, in 2020, our first year of lockdowns, um, and it was sort of in terms of best, you know, PR campaigns categories in that particular one, and you know, and, and you know, it was the first time really that everything had flipped and people had to, you know, pivot. 
um, they might have had a campaign planned, and then they had, and it was large bit, it was large wineries, small wineries, medium, all sort of entrants in the competition, and everyone. So you know, the budgets were very varied, but everyone had to sort of pivot from their original campaigns, and a lot of moving to you know Zoom tastings, but doing some pretty cool and interesting different things. I remember uh, the one winner they won because um, they actually took it to a bit of a different level just than just a standardised, we'll send you wines and we'll do a Zoom tasting. They actually did it was a wine and cheese tasting, but not only did you uh, taste the cheese, you actually made the cheese. <laughs> um, so, and Really? Yeah. Oh, that's so that, neat. Yeah, wow. it was totally neat. It was very cool. So, um, you know, they sent out all the ingredients. It was, you know, recipes and a bit of Zooms in between to assist you with making the cheese. It was It was like a sort of... Uh, it was a bit like a mozzarella, which didn't take, so it didn't take, you know, years <laughs> to make the cheese yeah. or anything. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, and at the time I just thought, I, I mean, yeah, I love a bit of something, a bit of interest, and it's all about, the you know, the customer experience, and I think that was, and given what was going on, you know, that was just fun and unique and brought things really to life and you got to, obviously it's all about the tasting of the wine, but this just created a whole another element to it. and. Um, was a lot of fun and they had a great sort of consumer response from it so that was that was a really standout one um you know as opposed to just others that were you know just just zipping to zoom and things like that but I think you know I as I've worked with decanter for six years I do a lot of their research and insights projects and I know decanter has pivoted in the UK and doing a lot of and they're con- go, continuing to do them so doing a lot of quite you know serious wine tastings um, you know, all around the globe. And obviously they have enormous reach. Um, so they're getting people, you know, all around the world being able to tune in and do and do their tastings. And, you know, they've got such a great, you know, they've got a great pedigree. So it's it's great for the brand, but it's also it's it's also great for the customer experience as well. So I you know, I'm a big even though everyone's had a bit of Zoom fatigue, I think in so many ways, like those examples, it's it's cool what you can do and reach a whole new well, I mean, there there are so many things after that that I want to talk about. So um, I guess the first one, just going back to the cheese idea, something that we talk about a lot, uh, and we really saw this with the proliferation of cocktails um, during the past two years, is that it feels like wine as a product lacks the Ikea effect, you know, that ability of we're going to do something with it. When, unless you're, you know, literally making a spritz out of it, all we get to do is open the bottle Um, And even that gets argued about whether or not we're using screw caps or corks, right? You know, that there's just, there's, there's Mm. no part of us that's in it. So I love this idea of integrating something where, you know, I know there have been a lot of wine and cheese tastings, but the notion that you're actually making it, because what you're going to do is you're going to walk out to the table and you're going to be so damn proud of yourself because you made the cheese and you can talk about the wine. Like, I I just think that that is completely brilliant. Um, Mm. High five to whatever winery did that. No, I agree. I think the Zoom thing is interesting because what it really changed was how consumers feel about it. So we might be tired of Zoom because as a wine brand, you know, I have wine brands who literally did thousands of of uh, virtual tastings and that can be exhausting for them. But for the person sitting on the other side of the screen, they probably are not doing thousands of mm. wine tastings, you know, and We've got some brands who are continuing to do it and continuing to have great success because the customer has realized I can experience wine from far away. Um, So, yeah, I I think I don't know if you saw it. I think that there was a big concern when America was coming out of lockdown because there were some brands that were like, phew, we can stop all of this digital stuff and we can go back to hand selling across the, the tasting room bar. Um, what, so just transition. One of the people who spoke at the conference was pre-record video. It was a gentleman whose name I can't remember who was wine marketing, the wine, wine tourism marketing, something like that uh, in the UK. I'll, I'll find that link and add it to the show notes. And he was saying in terms of experiences that his hypothesis going forward is that it's going to be a hybrid event where there's some, you know, like 
docent leadership walking through it. And then there's going to be the DIY, go off on your own, you know, follow your own path, make your own adventure. Yes. yes. How, yeah. How does this, I mean, especially with um, disease risk, like we don't want people walking through the vineyards. I know you guys have dealt with Loxra in Oz. How do we see our wine brands, our cellar doors adopting that hybridized experience? Yeah, it's it's a good point. And then the reality is, you know, I deal with, I've dealt with so many clients who, you know, are, you know, everyone of course wants more people to their cellar doors, but you know, look at Australia, we are really spread out. So it's, um, yeah. you know, in terms of getting people to the cellar doors, it actually is just a whole new channel to expose yourself, you know, hopefully then if they've never been before and you, you have a bit of a digital opportunity to sort of expose them to it, then they'll become a bit more brand ambassadors and get on board. And that's often what happens with, um, because, you know, you, you know, working in wine, we're all so lucky because it's, you know, it's a lifestyle industry and people, you know, generally when people are coming out to the wineries, they're all in a great mood. They're having, you know, they're in a relaxing time. I mean, that's why so many weddings get held at wineries. It's generally a, a highly positive experience. And, you know, I can't quite remember the stats, but it's quite, um, it has quite a, you know, massively positive effect on a consumer when they've been to a cellar door and had a good experience. And often they're just wanting to know, a, a lot of it is like wanting to tell our, their friends about little things that they've learnt there, whether, oh, the winemaker told me that, you know, um, this year's vintage is going to be the best one ever or, you know, what they've put in, you know, a little secret about what's going on. Everyone loves to kind of be in the know a little bit and, exp and, and tell their friends about that. And there's, there's, you know, proven research that when people chase a wine at a cellar door, you know, and then they buy a case or whatever and they'll get home. And it's like often there's quite a whole emotional thing going on and the wine might taste a bit different when you get home. And that's because of sense of place and emotion and things like that. But getting back to that kind of whole um, from your cellar door, I mean, I think there's great innovations that can be done from, you know, say if it is your wine club and, you know, people are doing this. I know Oak Ridge um, in, in Victoria, I remember seeing a couple of their videos. So it's not new, but things like this are great in terms of, okay, I'm part of this, their club and instead of just getting my dozen every now and again of wine sent to me, I actually get, a, you know, a great-looking EDM, a digital, you know, email and it's designed really well and it's got a quick little video of the winemaker telling me about the wines, telling me why they've chosen these wines. Um, so, you know, again, short and simple, doesn't need to be 10 minutes or anything like that, um, but just giving – it sort of brings it to life and, you know, and again – you know, whether it's footage, I hear a lot about um, with digital, you know, socials and things like that, you know, what works the best is, of course, not just pictures of wine bottles sitting on a shelf or things like that. It's like in the winery, behind the scenes, you know, showing the grapes coming in, you know, showing labelling happening, showing what's got going on behind the scenes. Um, or, th you know, I remember a winery that they were laughing to me that had one of their biggest posts was a brown snake at the, um, which brown snakes kill people, they're deadly. Um, a brown snake mm. was at the cellar door and they and they they were like, oh, should we put it on? And then it just went off because um, I'm not saying it was, you know, it, maybe that's that any publicity, publicity, but they were laughing in terms of the engagement that they had with that post was the highest that they'd ever had um, because it sort of brings things to life. It builds, a, you know, most of the time, well, for an example, I'm, I'm always a big one for, um, things that can make you sort of, you know, sort of be emotionally connected to things. So a long time ago when I was working for Co-Brand in New York, I, um, uh, yes, I was an Australian in my 20s living in New York and I was working on, I had five different brands. It was a great role. I got to, had brands that I was looking after in, in Chile, in France, in the US and New Zealand. So we were launching Craggy Range and I went out to Craggy yeah. Range and they, um, got me to um, dig, um, they got me to plant a vine in a particular, you know, single vineyard, vine, uh, vineyard, a really special part of, um, of Craggy Range. They had a professional photographer there, had a, like a, had a, like a gold shovel. And, um, and then when I got back to New York in my desk in, you know, New York, they sent me a framed picture of my vine with a little tag around it and it was always to give Co-Brand a special allocation of this wine. And, you know, things like that 
Uh, you know, I've had yeah, that, that picture rocks. forever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've had that picture forever. And even though it was Cobrand's uh, special allocation, not just mine, it was my photograph and it was my vine that I planted. Hopefully one day I'll get back to, to go there. But, you know, there's a lot of different things that you can do that build connections for people and, um, you know, giving them a special insight to things. I, I've done a lot of Salador research and it's really funny um, being at places where, you know, they have a million different things from Sculpture Park to, you know, every, art galleries to everything you you know you can think of, but the one number one thing that everyone loved the most was buying produce or buying things or eating meals in the restaurant that the food came from the property. And so, you know, in terms of all the other elements going on besides the wine, so everything else that you could possibly do. So, you know, it's that sort of you know a lot of the time it's people from the city coming out to the country. Um, to experience the vineyard and they, you know, really, you know, sort of love to get that whole sense of place and that connection to the property, which I think is fantastic. So it, it's so funny. Um, one of the things I remember years ago sitting in the conference and a woman who was the head of the Missouri AVA, um, which is one of the oldest AVAs in America, actually, was saying how completely bizarre their top performing post uh was that they showed how to make christmas ornaments with wine corks and <laughs> it just it went off um and, and then you know talking about like we've had we've had a client who had a picture of the winemaker holding a gecko you know that had been kind of saved from a place in the winery i think that the thing is <laughs> again coming back to this idea that things seem very normal to us. Um, yes. And I talk about this all the time when I'm traveling, you know, nobody eats the way that we do. Nobody sees as many vineyards as we see, you know, it's easy to become jaded to the fact that for the average consumer, this is, this is quite glamorous and, and, you know, very glorious. Um, I, I, I noticed one thing that comes up quite often in content marketing research um, we go through and we do sort of the deep dive in what areas are asking what questions. And one of the questions that comes up in almost every area is, what do I wear to a winery? <laughs> and we always kind of chuckle at it because it seems so self-evident what you would wear to a winery. And yet it's not. Of course, there's going to be someone out there who's like, I've never been to a winery before. How do I dress? Right. Is it fancy? Do yeah. I wear heels? God forbid, do I wear heels? So that idea, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of empathy, that idea of kind of putting ourselves in the customer's shoes and and thinking, well, what is it like to be 22, and which I was and going to my <laughs> first ever winery. And I just, I thought, I thought I was so posh. Um, yeah. And, and just, just kind of moving on from that. Now, you I, talk I, about video. Yeah. Continue. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think it's a really important point. And in, in research and insights, I, I really hammer it home a lot with clients. It's like, you are not the average wine consumer. I mean, obviously they know that, but it's like, you know, you delve down into different groups of consumer segmentation in wine consumers. Anyone that works in the industry and has been there for a while, you're not even in that chart. You know what I mean? Like, because you are so deeply yeah. connected to it. You know so much about you know, different varieties and, you know, a whole host of different things. So you can't, you can't, it's very difficult to be objective about what it's like for a consumer. And I, and I did laugh about that, about what to wear, but I, I have a great, um, it's from Wine Folly, who, you know, have some great infographics and things with yeah. wine. And, and I love one, they did it a long time ago, about that decision-making chart about how you choose wine. And I would often use that, you know, when I'm talking to different audiences about it's it's confusing for a lot of consumers. It's intimidating still to a degree. It's intimidating going into a cellar door for a lot of people. And and that brings up that what do I wear? You know, sort of thing. So and and that's where, yeah, there's so many things that can be done to make people feel comfortable, to make them relaxed, and to kind of, you know, break down those barriers a lot. And I, I think cellar doors is a really interesting one that, you know, if you're doing what you've been doing for 10 years, you need to change. Like you can't, you can't keep having the same old model or anything like that. Um, and, you know, breaking up and doing things a little bit differently, whether it's, you know, specialised little sort of tours in the cellar, in, you know, in the winery or, you know, a whole host of different things. It's, a, you know, it's a lot better than just, you know, doing the old model 
um, that has been done for us. So um, with reference to exactly what you're talking about, tasting rooms um, and experiences, I was so pleasantly surprised um, by my travels through Victoria because one, the, the, the spaces were just jam packed with young people with families. So like on, um, on one day I went to, let's see if I get this right. I went to Demet Chandon, uh, Levantine Hill and the new St. Hubert's TWE yes. shared location. So three totally beautiful properties. different all three beautiful, all three very different, you know, audiences, points in the market, and all three of them completely slammed loads of young people. I'm going to get in there. Plenty of Gen Xers because we do exist right. as a generation. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and, and this notion that comes up of young people are not drinking wine did not exist in those spaces. And well, that, I'm glad you had a great day too, because I know there was a lot of rain that day. Was that right? That, yeah, we that, were very lucky to even make it there. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I mean, those three properties are absolutely beautiful properties in the Yarra Valley. And, you know, but there is quite a range. There's a, then there's, you know, a lot more sort of small owner operator type ones and then, you know, sort of mid sized ones. So the, they are sort of three big banner type ones. Um, I have been to them all. I've been to the St. Hubert's. It's only opened this year. In the last few months and it is it's it's beautiful and there's so much you know different scope of what they're going on there and you know they're going to be building a luxury hotel there um which mm. is great there isn't actually one in the era valley so which is quite a gap um there you know so you know so that'll be a great addition um but yeah Le levantine hill you know they have helicopters landing there quite frequently um you know and have you know a lot of different elements there and it, yeah there are quite different audiences that's great to hear about how busy it was and how there, particularly on a weather with about a hundred mils of rain that day. Right. I know. And, and families, you know, like, um, the St. Hubert's location, you see families out on the grass rolling down the hill, you know, you've got corporate photography happening in other places. Um, I kind of want to circle back around to the video thing that, that you're talking about. I am such a huge advocate of video for exactly some of the things that you brought up, this idea of you know, show, don't tell. We we don't have to write down an FAQ for how you dress at a winery if you've got great video of your winemakers and showing what they're in or you're interviewing the people who are present in the winery. Um, and, and so much opportunity for video. It's really, really hard to convince people to go there. Are you having any luck with that? Um, yeah, I, th I think, well, I'm, I must say I'm... <laughs> I'm a big fan of video, but then I'm like, I shy away from doing it myself. So, so um, I, I get Podcasts why people. Great. <laughs> I get why people, um, you know, have 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 you know concerns about it. But no, it's it's it's. I mean, there was a presentation at the conference. It was incredible with um, being able to. I should remember off the top of my head the guy from New Zealand. Um, he oh, in, was that Sean? Yes. Yeah, I thought that was yeah. an amazing. One incredible drone footage. And it was for export orientated and just because the scenery was absolutely fantastic. And it was a short video, but it was just short, sharp, simple little, you know, headlines coming up and just gave you an amazing sense of place and it, it took you there. And I think that's the power of video. And and again, you know, lives, doing Instagram lives and things like that, you know, that's that's so powerful and easy to do as well as, you know, those sort of full production videos. So yeah, and, it, and and it's knowing, getting back to what we were talking about, that, you know, we because we, we work so closely in it, you sort of forget that for a lot of people it's, you know, this is quite a treat. It's an amazing experience to go out to a winery and, you know, all those three wineries that you mentioned in the Yarra Valley, beautiful properties. Um, everyone that goes out there no doubt feels quite special when they're out there and, you know, and there's a lot to show off there. So there's so much that can be shown. And even from the small little ones, the other thing, like I'm in the Macedon Ranges and a lot of uh, – sort of what's different about this region is um, a lot of the, you know, there's plenty of cellar doors, but a lot of the cellar doors, when you go there, you'll most likely meet the owner or the winemaker. So it's it's a bit of a different experience and that's a bit of a unique selling point for this region in terms of, you know, being really being able to meet the maker. Um, so every, every region is quite different and that's what I was meaning. It doesn't matter if you're a large player or a small player, 
there's still a lot that you can do with video as well. Well, you know, the thing that I was thinking as, as I was touring the location, so I had two and a half days, went to some big, some small, um, is that we've had all of the discussion around how Napa has become so expensive. And I'm going to use the word contrived. I think that there are a lot of Napa experiences that are at this point so very scripted um, and, and, and planned out. And here I am an hour outside of Melbourne, absolutely the helicopters everywhere. And from an American spending standpoint, you know, the the dollar is strong with English speaking, which means it's very easy for them. I was just looking at it and thinking, this is, especially if they can fly in and they don't have to drive on the opposite side of the road. Um, this mm-hmm. seems to me like such an undertapped market for international wine tourism. Um, it's, it's, pro- it's probably, well, it, it's it's a little bit different at the minute, sort of post COVID, and the mm. Asian market in particular is really big for international tourism with Australian wines, but it sort of probably hasn't quite bounced back yet. Um, so, uh, no doubt, but you know, absolutely, I totally agree. But we sort of we definitely there's more room and opportunity for the US. I always think, having lived there, I don't think you got the you know the US they get enough holidays. <laughs> they only get 10 days a year. I know, right? <laughs> they, they get 10 days and they're lucky if they can take that. So this is why we have the boomers because we have to wait for them to retire mm. to actually get on the cruise ship and end up um, wherever we are, which is very, very unfortunate. Um, but yeah, the, the other thing that I loved about it, just going to kind of sing some praises as a expat Antipodean is the total lack of pretense. You know, I like that we've got winemakers who are so skilled, have made wine all over the world and are just as genuine and as welcoming as they can possibly be. I actually think it's something that New Zealand does remarkably well um, also. So Mm. for me, for me, that was really lovely. Um, All right. So moving forward, we heard all the discussion uh, about challenges, innovation, where we're going, you know, with 20 years behind you in the wine industry, what do you think are the opportunities for Australia and to a larger extent, you know, Australasia going forward? Uh, I do. It, it is it is an interesting time. And having been in the industry for so long, I have seen different cycles before. So, um, you know, it's, it's you know, it's it, the whole China situation is not great at all. Um, but we have... Um, had our tails between our legs, you know, many years ago as well in terms of the cycles that happen in the industry and then sort of go up. And, you know, I'm sort of keeping my fingers crossed a little bit about China, but maybe I'm being a bit too hopeful there. Look, I think opportunities are um, obvious, you know, opportunities are other export markets, but, you know, alternative, you know, other options going on in Asia, whether it's South Korea, whether it's Singapore, whether it's Japan. Uh, people talk a little bit about India, but there still seems to be a few different challenges there. But, you know, sort of watch this space. Um, and the US, obviously, there's always the UK and the US, but the US in particular, you know, we have a higher average price point in the US. Our overall, you know, we're sort of probably still got a bit of lingering, um, you know, sort of mentality about it with the UK about price points. Although I have, to, I did do a bit of work earlier in the year uh, with Richard Siddle. Uh, in the UK, and we yeah. did a whole buyers report there, and had a lot of buyers, and we we're particularly focused on Victoria, and they were saying it is a bit, and I love the word tipping point, but a bit of a tipping point at the moment, and you know you don't sort of think of these opportunities, but because there's a lot of logistics and shipping issues going on around the world, so they were telling me that a lot of buyers in the UK, for instance, well if I have, they were you know they're in the mindset if I've got to wait six weeks for a product to come from Europe, I may as well get it from Australia or Victoria, and I'm going to get better return on investment. I'll get more bang for my buck sort of thing, um, which was great to hear. And they were talking about certainly that they'd felt that there was a bit of a tipping point in terms of discovering new parts of Australia and, you know, and even like with Victorian wines, how diverse, and hopefully you saw a bit of that, how diverse, you know, Victoria can be in terms of we do, you know, we were at Chandon, we do sparkling really well all the way through to your stickies and your fortified wines. Um, Victoria does really have quite a mix of cool climate wines through to warmer continental sort of climate. So we we do we're kind of quite unique in the space in in Australia in terms of our diversity there, um, which is great. But I think as well, um, 
being able to really probably hone in on and get a bit more pointed in terms of your own direct-to-consumer for, for a lot of wineries and putting a lot more focus on that, obviously, again, because it's the highest margin. So whether it's through the cellar door, whether it's, um, you know, online sales and what you can do in that space is probably some opportunities. Um, not to mention, too, then, you know, quite a growth in um, uh, no-low, the no and low alcohol, which may freak some people out, but you look at, like, pretty amazing statistics of what Geeson's doing in New Zealand, so it's not damaging mm. their brand. What do you think about Nolo? God, I'm super excited by it. And I think there's this weird thing where um, we tend to think of wine drinkers in this box, like a wine drinker is mm. always a certain kind of wine drinker. And I can't tell you the number of nights that, you know, I would absolutely go for something that's a no alk because I want the ceremony and the ritual. You know, I drink coffee to wake up in the morning and then I, I'll normally have a glass of wine or a glass of sparkling at the end of the night. But that's just, you know, especially with age, because I'm very open about that. I cannot drink the same way that I could when I was 25. Um, yep. And that, you know, drinking a really nice preparation. And that's what's important is that there is some experience, some service to it, right? For me is an opportunity to round out my day, to kind of close out my day. Um, I'm still going to be a wine lover. I'm still going to be a champagne lover. This is not a competition for my dollar. It's just a competition between literally like water or tea, yeah. you know? Uh, so um, yeah, a, a lot to be done. And the other thing that I just want to say about it is there's a lot to be done in terms of better using our resources. You know, if we've got facilities that can put a, a kombucha under crown cap, you know, in our bottling yeah. lines, those bottling lines are sitting there unused. Well, we need to be thinking about that. It's a really good point. I've I've have a friend here who was one of the first ones to make she's uh, make kefir here in Australia, and um, which you know is similar to kombucha, and um, and she's she's done really really well. And but you know it was it's always really hard to maintain if you're doing it as pure as possible the alcohol. Um, and for then not to, you know, flip into being a product that has to be sold in a licensed venue. So a lot mm. of challenges for them in that space. So you're right. You know, if you actually go to a winemaker, they'll know how to sort of handle that a little bit. They've got the experience. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's been a long time now, but I remember being pregnant and I still wanted something nice. Um, Tanisha Townsend, who we interviewed after Wine Paris this year, she talked about it on the podcast where she was saying that, you know, it used to be that you would go and if, if you wanted a non-alk, they'd bring it out to you basically in like a juice cup, right? Instead <laughs> of now where we understand, present it beautifully, make, you know, make the experience of it. Um, and when I look at the spaces with all of the young people and their parents and their grandparents and kids and the whole thing, it makes us at, at realistically very little additional cost. It makes us so much more responsive and resilient. So yeah, I don't understand why a brand wouldn't do it. Yeah. The other thing, the other thing that, that yep. just, just for me to have a little rant for a minute, cause I'm getting on my, my <laughs> soapbox right now is sure. non alks get us past a lot of, well, they get us past all of our alcohol advertising issues, because of mm. course it's really hard for us to go out in digital and market a bottle of wine, we've got we've got great restrictions. And sometimes in America, you can even have state by state or county by county restrictions. Whereas if you're advertising an experience and a no alk, I can mm. advertise that anywhere. No, totally. Well, and I I don't I I can't I'm not abreast of what's going on in other countries. But when when I I think it was this year, I can't remember. Maybe it was last year when I first saw um, no alcohol right at the price where you were paying at the cash registers. At um, petrol stations, I was like, "Hold on," because I recognise the brand, um, but I'm like, "But of course, it was no alcohol," and and that's only been a change here in Australia just recently, and it's quite yeah, it's quite unusual to see. And for me, the I think the great thing about Nolo is obviously it's it's you know it is, is a trend that's going on. It's it's not about to take over or anything like that. But the most important thing is just what you said: people aren't deserting drinking um, alcohol; they're just they're just flexing up and down depending on the occasion that they've got in front of them sort of thing. So, and another thing that got pointed out to me that I actually hadn't thought about um, 
which I, I was a bit disappointed given I work in insights. But, um, but the, you know, there is also a bit of a propensity of what's being seen that it actually can be a good way to get people into the category of drinking as well, young consumers. Um, because sometimes, you know, particularly with red and things like that, you know, it's a bit of a struggle to make. It's quite challenging to make um, low and no alcohol red wine and still be as, you know, as beautiful as your alcoholic version. And sometimes they can be a bit sort of, you know, the taste profile is a little bit sort of milder and it can be an opportunity mm. to get people into the category, which is, you know, that's that's great. You know, we don't we hear well, a lot about it, younger people it deserting Angus it. Houston? Yeah, was it Angus Hewson who said in his presentation that actually the research showed that the average consumer can't identify the difference? So again, that notion of we are not our audience, you know, we're like, you, you know, and I'm not saying that everybody needs to go out and produce mediocre, um, no and low alk wine. But again, just perhaps the qualitative and quantitative research is going to yes. be really valuable for us to understand if this, if, if this is more viable than maybe we think it is. Um, mm, the absolutely. other thing that I, I'm going to say about it is brand loyalty, you know, like brand loyalty matters. If I've got a brand that I love and they're giving me an opportunity to support them by purchasing a no alk or a no alk mixer that I can then control the amount of alcohol that's in it. That's, that's great for me because it means that I'm still able to give a brand that I like my money. I can top up cases if I'm purchasing online. Like there are a lot of benefits to it. You and I could do a whole hour, a whole hour just talking about no. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree because it's like, um, you know, a lot of insert, insights work that I've done, often quite powerful brands. And I mean, many brands do have this, but not everyone, but, you know, gives the opportunity. We're talking about, not talking about NOLA at the minute, but give the opportunity with their different price points to be able to, you know, sort of, you know, consumers you know identify with the brand they love it and then they trust it because they are they can be a bit fearful and they can then go up and down based on the price point and the occasion that they're doing so that's a really really good point about adding in yeah. nolo because that's part of your whole repertoire and i'm sure you know that new zealand brand that i mentioned before but geese and you know they they're i think they've been quite innovative in general across the board that that brand so it's really um yeah, it's really interesting to see. And I've, I've heard, yeah, it's really interesting to see what's, what they're doing in that space. So we've got Nolo. Um, a kind of last question in terms of the insights that are coming across your desk. Is there anything beyond Nolo that's really exciting you in the next couple of years? Uh, oh, look, probably for me, it's product innovation formats, innovation formats. And, and really because like we're talking about that we're all not regular wine consumers, I obviously am highly immersed in insights and things. So again, it's probably a bit of a, you know, the really interesting area. And I think in general, what we're experiencing right now, I'm not talking about the China thing, but I'm talking about, you know, NOLO, product innovations, even hybrid drinks and all of that, um, is is we're kind of in the middle of the most innovative period we've ever been, I think, really, with wine and particularly with beverages in general certainly from the entire period that I've worked in this space. And it's probably we've been pushed into it a bit by the massive growth of craft spirits and craft beers and hybrid drinks and RTDs and seltzers and things like that. Like we've probably been pushed into it a little bit by that. And so, you know, canned wines, that just increases the opportunity for people to drink wine because they're here all the time. You know, uh, well, they're at a they're at a massive event like a concert or things like that where they can't be glass. So you know, yes, the, well, you can still have wine because it's um, in a can. So opportunities when wine wouldn't have been okay. Um, or you hear a lot about young consumers, and again, this is not you or I, but they see buying a whole bottle of wine is quite a big investment. Is in what if I spend twenty five dollars and I don't like it? Whereas I, don't, I think you and I don't think like that. <laughs> Haven't thought like that for a long time, but um. Um, yeah, so again, having smaller size formats, different, you know, opportunities to try the wine gives, you know, it, it creates new opportunities for a whole host of consumers as well, which is great. Do you, do you think that, um, do you think that more expensive or premium brands can ever jump that hurdle to make it happen? Because I, I think that's the problem is everybody's concerned, right? That what we've got going into cans, and we always laugh about this. It's not that canned wine's bad, it's that shitty canned wine is bad, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And and the, I've I've only seen a handful of examples. Um, Talis Creek 
did their bag and box. I think it was a three liter and that sold out within hours. And then in June of 2020, and I only remember that date because it was right after COVID started. Otherwise I'm crap at dates. (laughs) June of 2020, a brand in the UK released what they called the Bagnums, which were 1.5 pouches of good quality French wine. So, Mm. but I can't think, I can't think of instances where you know, high quality, well known for quality brands are willing to embrace it. It's a good point, and I don't know if I have the answer. However, it's a bit like screw cap. I think you know, and I. It's a bit like you know, there was a period in time when, and I certainly know in the US, screw cap is nowhere near as you know pronounced as what it is here, and we're just used to it. We're used to now having you know eighty dollar wines with screw cap. But there was certainly a period where it was only the lesser expensive wines that were in screw cap and you wouldn't dare put your more expensive wines under screw cap. But we've sort of that, you know, that has changed as, you know, sort of consumer adoption and, you know, sort of understanding of it has as well. Do you think? What do you think about that? With yeah, no, I, I've broken many a knitting needle trying to <laughs> get a cork out of a bottle because I didn't have I didn't have a corkscrew. And it's funny. You know, there's this joke around, I don't, I don't know what men talk about, but women um, in wine, we've all had the conversation about various tools that we carry around in our handbags or our makeup bags that we've used to try to get a cork out. Apparently a mascara um, tube works really, really well. But from a straight up customer experience standpoint, yeah, I love our screw caps. I realize how kiwi I am in saying that. Um, yeah. I, I do think that it's just going to take some ballsy brands. So Mm -hmm. maybe that is Tabless Creek with their bag and box to say, look, we're looking at this from the customer experience. And, and I suppose the thing I harp on this, I feel like every podcast is that also just someone sharing their data, someone coming out with the examples. I mean, Jason has at Tabless has been really good about saying, I think it's on Twitter and on his blog, how quickly those sold. But for the most part, we don't get a lot of, um, a lot of information on the success or viability of these really experiments. Yeah, that's that's something that I would love to see is just, you know, brands saying we did this and our people loved it or we did something and it completely fucking crashed and burned. But mm. that's good for all of us to know. Um, Absolutely. I would yeah, I honestly I would love to see the bag and box. Um become more viable for good wines because I think it's a great way to drink control portion sizes, you know, control temperature because we can pop it in the fridge, whatever. So that's something that, that I'm excited about, you know, God well, willing it, it happens. And it also, you know, the proportion of people living on their own is massive. I don't know. It's like, I can't, you know, the number of households in Australia that yeah. are single occupied is massive. And I have done a lot of cast research before and for, for clients and it always fascinates me because, um, you know, and often the insights are back like don't treat us like a we're different types of consumers. We are wine drinkers and um, don't make me do the walk of shame and go to the end of the uh, – go to the end all the way through the store to get to where I'm going I, I just because it's, you know, and a lot of the time it might be I just want one or two glasses and I want it in the fridge and I want it yeah. to be – so, you know, that behaviour – you know, should apply to, you know, good quality wines as well. Word. I agree with you entirely, but I'm so grateful for your time. Uh, I, I know it's a little bit hard to pull together. You have been in the middle of floods as well. So thank you, Steph. I really appreciate it. A pleasure. Great to catch up with you, Polly. Thanks very much. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. And a great big thank you to Steph for joining me today. The Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing. We hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th, 2022 in Verona, Italy. Remember, tickets are on sale now. So for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net.
guys, I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.